Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Jen. Welcome to Marginalia Pod, where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connections through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurungai and Daru people, traditional custodians of the land where I am recording today, and pay my respects to their elders, past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Tangata Whenua of Tafanganui Atara, where I'm recording today. Another week, good work, getting to Saturday. We did it, and you've been in work lockdown, haven't you? Because of the protesters and... And the COVIDs, which we're now over 10,000 cases yesterday, which is the first time in New Zealand. So everyone's kind of struggling because, you know, we've had a really chill pandemic where we used to think 80 cases was the end of the world. So the fact that we've had now 12,000, I think, yesterday is a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. I remember when we were like getting up to the 600 a day during the Delta outbreak. And I was like, this is really bad. And then at one point it was like 35,000 new cases. And I was like, blink, blink. Okay, this is Mm. fine. The room is on fire. This is fine. Never going anywhere again, but it's fine. Definitely feels like that, you know, this is fine meme. Um, Just everything. It's a lot. It's been a long week. The week has been approximately six months. So I'm happy to get time to spend with you as always. I know, and we got so much baz and so many feelings, and oh, but we should talk about what sparked yes. joy before we get into the chapter. Well, for me, I had my book club this week, which was lovely. We Yay. do this about once a month. Did we have one in January? Maybe. Anyway, point is, we had that this week. You definitely did, because he recommended Carry On to someone. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah, good point. Um, <laughs> and she started reading it. And she likes it. So I was like freaking out about that. And I told you one of the other women was telling us about this book she'd read and how she was like, it's just a really great queer romance. She was talking about it. And I was like, was it boyfriend material? And she's like, yes. (laughs) And so I got to like freak out about that because I love boyfriend material. So yeah, and we went to this great cafe called Loretta's, which I really love. It was so lovely. And it's just a really cool group of women and just nice to get out and just have good conversations. So yeah, that sparked joy. Oh, that's so good. What sparked joy for you this week? A couple of things, but I got a whole big box of new fabric. It's so good. I'm so excited. I'm going to actually get it and show it to you because it is relevant to our interests. Mm. Look at this. Oh my gosh, that's adorable. It's teacups and spoons. Oh, lovely. There are little dots. Oh, it's so good. Um, Adorable. Camellia by um, Melody Miller. And it's all tea related because camellias are the plants that tea comes from. Camellia sinensis, which is something I know and I have no reason to know that. (laughs) I was like petting the fabric. And there's this thing if you're a quilter or a sewist where you like you get fabric and then you like don't want to use it because it's too pretty. Mm. And I definitely suffer from that. But I did spend a lot of time like folding it nicely and petting it and like looking at all the prints and just makes my heart so happy such a silly little thing but just made me happy i love that i love how you love quilting and i think it's so funny that i worked on a quilting magazine for almost two years when i know nothing about quilting so like seeing the joy you experience i'm like oh yeah i remember writing about that yeah i love that you got to write about it and i published one pattern in a magazine and that felt like such a process to do and like it didn't get done the way i wanted it to because it kind of needed a diagram and oh yeah there wasn't a diagram. so i felt like i had let everyone down (laughs) I was like, oh no. So I didn't pursue it again, but I would have, I think I would have loved that job. I would love to write a feature article or something for a quilting magazine. I think that would be just great. Well, the magazine still exists. So, you know, you can always reach out to them. Maybe someday when I actually want to do some work, that's not this. I really just want to do this, Jen. This is the thing I really love to do. My favorite thing that I actually did on that magazine was towards the end of my time there, I had already resigned. Um, They let me go on some shoots and that was really Mm. fun when they take the quilts out to these random locations. Usually like farmhouses in the Blue Mountains and you'd like dress the set and we'd take all these photos and all these really cool houses about like yeah showcasing the quilts and how you would put them to make them like photograph well because they're quite hard to photograph yeah yeah absolutely you can't just whack it on a bed there's kind of a joke in the quilting world that like you you look for the husband's feet under the yeah, quilt hold it up because <laughs> he's like holding it up like where you have like a lot of people that i've known for the decade that i've been a quilter like their kids were little and now their kids are teenagers so their kids are now holding it up like mm. it's really funny to see how people's kids grow up by watching the quilts get taller <laughs> Yeah, it's it's not easy to photograph a quilt and certainly not to photograph it in a way that makes it like really shine. But mm. those shoots would be really fun. It was really interesting. Well, this week we're reading chapters 36 through 44 through the theme of ideology. Jen, do you have a story for us? 
Well, it's less of a story and more of a lament, so do bear with Mm. me. So as we record this, there is currently an occupation underway at New Zealand's Parliament grounds and of the surrounding streets. This, I think, is day 19 of this so-called protest, and I honestly hope that by the time we publish this, they are no longer there, because Mm. otherwise I will probably have lost my mind and maybe be done for some sort of sabotage, because I already have lots of (laughs) great ideas about sneaking in there and stealing placards or putting nails and driveways to puncture tyres, so you know my civil disobedience is through the roof yeah this occupation started as a protest against vaccine mandates which i would say is an ideology right so there's a definition of ideology that i found that says ideologies are patterned clusters of normative imbued ideas and concepts including particular representations of power relations Hmm. these conceptual maps help people navigate the complexity of their political universe and carry claims to social truth so i very much feel like that's the space we're operating in like and when we think about how conspiracy theories underpin a lot of this behavior i think Mm -hmm. that ideology helps people make sense of the world like that's why i think we see so much conspiracy theories especially at the moment take root because people feel so out of control like the pandemic has taken so much from people right and i mean conspiracy theories aren't new it can be small things like covering up the existence of bigfoot or bigger things like you know the moon landing isn't real or what we're seeing now (laughs) which is like covid is being used to usher in some kind of global communist state like any government is capable of a conspiracy that big and i mean these things have always existed but I feel with the advent of social media, it just seems louder and more contagious, quite frankly, because it's going viral, like literally going viral. And we're trapped Mm. in this postmodernist space where there is distrust of experts and authority and where the concept of truth is so malleable. So fake news is just embedded in any argument you have now, right? People can just dismiss things because it's fake news. Um, People will cherry pick what they want to believe based on the ideology they wish to support. And again, this is not a new thing, but there's just so much more of it due to this unprecedented precedented access we have to information and knowledge thanks to the technology like I carry in my pocket. Like the technological change that our society has experienced in the last 30 years is actually phenomenal. I think back Mm. to how I used to use the internet when I was like 10, right? We only got it when I was 10. And how every aspect of my life I now use it. And that's wild. None of Mm -hmm. that is inherently bad. But when you have ideologies that drive people to step You know, it drives people to the steps of parliament. So they're claiming a pandemic that's literally killing people in their thousands isn't real. That vaccines are a bioweapon and they're threatening to lynch politicians and journalists. And they're 100% believe in that, right? Like the ideology that motivates those threats is something that they believe in. And that is terrifying. Like, I get that there are many reasons for protest. Of course, I'm, you know, pro the right to protest. And I get that everyone is really tired and feel powerless in the face of two years of this pandemic. And I also understand that there are people who have legitimate reasons not to trust governments and authorities because of past behavior, you know, who've seen their cultures decimated in the name of other ideologies. But to go full circle, you know, well, actually just be a cliche for a minute moment with great power comes great responsibility so you can't hide behind a screen of freedom of speech or just asking questions quote unquote there has to be rigor and critical thought that goes with these things there has to be a basis of facts but i think for that you need a sense that things are based in reality and what we're seeing now is we're not living in the same reality we're not experiencing events in the same way at all there was a really interesting analysis on twitter um around the Wellington occupation and the social commentary around it. So it looked at what the media and non-participants, especially in Wellington, were reporting versus what the protesters at the site themselves were reporting. And what you got was a picture of two very different events. It was like alternate realities. And I think that's why there's so much pushback from protesters against Wellingtonians when they say things like, oh, we were abused or I was harassed or someone pulled my mask off or whatever. They always ask for proof because that is not their experience. That's not what they're seeing. That's not the reports from the people around them right so for them this is a fabrication but that is also true to wellingtonians experiences like this is what is happening like you know this is the reality of the situation um but they literally cannot see it and that breeds further mistrust of facts and of the media and then two weeks later which is where we are now you have people who are genuinely worried about people who were normal quote unquote at the start of this who just had genuine concerns are now standing out there making tinfoil hats to protect themselves from electric magnetic weapons which they believe is making them sick because they don't believe that the COVID that is circulating around the camp is real so they've fabricated this reason for their sickness 
I'm not kidding. They are legitimately making tinfoil hats down there right now. Like, right now. I'll put it, like, it's wild. This is so wild to me. Oh my gosh. And this is the thing. You can laugh this off and you can call them crazy because they are a minority. 95% of New Zealand is vaccinated and believes in COVID, but they're not. Like, this is just an example. There are also proper fascists in that camp. You know, you could see people getting radicalized to the point that they're making tinfoil hats. Well, then you can bet that there are people getting radicalized to an extreme right-wing ideology as well. They're in the same camp. Like, this enchantment with the state is this fertile breeding ground for this kind of behavior. And that's dangerous. I think the way social media algorithms creates these echo chambers and that fragments your reality and shows you stuff that already supports your worldview. Yeah. It's just terrifying. And even on the non-conspiracy end, I don't know if you saw, but like there's already a viral video on TikTok right now that's showing a Russian paratrooper going into Ukraine. Yeah, isn't that old? Like really old? Yeah, it's a video from 2016, right? But there's no room for correction in that narrative. And Mm -hmm. it's precisely because of that disruption of truth that Russia is even in the position to do what it's doing right now, right? Like social media was instrumental in destabilizing the democracy in the US with the 2016 election and with the UK with Brexit. (laughs) Like it's naive to think that these things aren't related. And it's naive to think that people like Mark Zuckerberg aren't, quite frankly, the villains of our story. Even through an action, right? No responsibility for their great Power, right they're not taking exactly. responsibility and doing the things they need to i think the prime minister said after the march 15th here that you know you're the platform you're not just the postman you're the one who's enabling the message to be delivered yeah. you can't be absolved from your responsibility because you yep. didn't want it so yeah i don't have a fun conclusion to this ideologies are important i think they give meaning to our lives but i don't think you necessarily need to build your right life around an ideology yeah you just need to try and be a good human and recognize that you have responsibilities to other people we have mm-hmm. responsibilities to each other in community and society you can't hold this all-consuming belief inside yourself there has to be space to grow to learn to recognize the flaws and weaknesses in the things you do believe and frankly get off social media like i know i'm a massive hypocrite because i work in it but it's also evil and it's going to destroy us all Mm. not just our societies but definitely our well-being like our mental well-being is not made for this it's not made for consuming content the way that we're consuming it it's just a bad bad time yeah so yeah ideology that's my story So cheerful. No, thanks, Jen. Thanks for bringing all that up. And like, I think it's really timely with the recent invasion of Ukraine and the protests going on in Wellington, which is normally a very sensible city, I think, you know, like Mm. it's, it's just everything feels nuts. A few weeks ago, Grace Tame was talking about a similar thing. Mm. She got a phone call saying the prime minister was very worried that she would say something to discredit him because it's an election year. And she was like, you have got to be kidding me. It's a really powerful speech and I'll make sure to link it in the show notes. But there's this ideology that like when you're in power, you have to keep the power Mm -hmm. because people want so badly to be in control. And I I definitely see the tension with, with that in this section. Like there's a lot of different ideologies at play. I went quite personal. I went into like what Mm. what makes people tick, but I think that there is definitely some political motivations too. Yeah. Well, do you want to do the chapter summaries and then we can get stuck in? Absolutely. Agatha makes it very clear that she will not be a supporting character in whatever this is. Penelope won't leave Watford either, even though her family is currently being raided by the mage's men. Baz, at the behest of his aunt Fiona, searches the mage's office. Simon catches him and relays the message from his mother's visitation. Baz relives the memory of her death. Baz and Simon agree to work together, and then they do. They turn a dragon away from Watford. Lucy tells her story. So let's just start and talk about the mage authoritarianism. Yeah. That's what the mage is, right? Like, he Mm -hmm. is banning books. He's trying to control what people think, how they move, how they behave, the spells they use. Like, I don't think he's necessarily wrong to say that you should adapt to modern language. This is the problem with all political ideologies. They always start off a bit sensible. You're like, oh, yeah, I can see how you got to this conclusion. Mm -hmm. Like, you can see, you know, he wanted to include everyone. And embracing modern language is probably not a bad idea. You don't want to influence culture just to keep things alive because tradition is tradition. Yeah. But he pushes it so far the other way. Mm -hmm. By not letting older spells be used and by taking all of the useful things out of the library and getting rid of classes like linguistics, which are essential to magical study, right? One of the epithets that they use is gnome, as in Chomsky, the linguist, Mm. because he's such a strong figure in the magical world, the magical community at Watford. Like, this is a huge deal. And he's going so hard in one way that it's like he's too busy protecting the potential of magic to actually work on looking after the the magic that exists already. 
Basically. And I mean, like, the thing I find really interesting about him is that he was all about allowing anyone with magic into Watford, blah, blah, blah. So you could get this kind of like, oh, yeah, he's a liberal. He's a rebel. He's all about this life. You could argue that he's really liberal. But then I think you see this undercurrent of, like, nastiness in the magical community, right? Where they treat normals as lesser people. There's a real sense of magical superiority. And the only person really railing against that is Agatha. Like, she's the only voice of reason when it comes to normals, right? Yeah, she definitely has the like why can't we just talk about it why is it a thing why can't I just have friends that are normal like I don't understand and I get that yeah like I think that there's very much a closed barricaded like the drawbridge is up sort of feel around the magical community like the world of mages is very us be them and normals are definitely not us and I think that that directly feeds into the ideology that a lot of the the people have like even Baz is quite shocking Mm. about some of his positions like you sort of think I can see why Agatha would call him a Tory vampire (laughs) Mm. because he's got very conservative viewpoints like from my perspective and I think that Simon has much more like little l liberal viewpoints in the way that he really does think everybody deserves an education and everybody should be allowed in that can speak magic and that like he really believes that the mage is trying to protect something very valuable and he feels like it's vulnerable because he feels vulnerable which i have to say is one of the things i absolutely love about this text is the nuance within the political ideology that Mm -hmm. it presents because political ideology is not simple it is not just right versus left like and this is something that we struggle with i think in the environment that we're in and have been for the last however many years because people try to oversimplify your political positioning but it's not black and white right and in this we see that like you've got Penelope who you would argue is liberal but she holds a lot of the same views that Baz does who you would argue is conservative but then we also have Penelope's mum who is very like rebellious and against this government that she's kind of forced into being on the side with like she's so anti-mage but he's still on the right side you know so she's still involved it's just fascinating to me how this works because it's so true to life and I think it's worth acknowledging like yes you can be liberal and still hold conservative views in certain elements yeah absolutely I think the way that I get around this when I'm talking to actual people I got this advice from I think it was Dear Hank and John episode someone wrote in and said what do I do about my like really right-wing relatives I you know like what do I do when they start railing about this and he said just ask about the policies like learn about the policies in their specifics and say okay so do you really think that single moms shouldn't get tax breaks do you really think that kids shouldn't get preschool subsidized if their parents can't afford it like you start asking them the questions about what they believe and almost Mm. nobody is going to go yeah I do think people should starve on the streets people have a concept about what it means to be like a generous person they don't actually act on that they don't want to be cruel I think people are fundamentally like mostly good but they just get Mm. this idea in their head that somebody hasn't earned it or doesn't deserve it or is taking advantage of it and that fires up some negativity yeah I hold that in my head a lot when I think about this I especially in this in this reading when I was thinking about Baz following Fiona's you know, mm. requirement to go to the office and get something like she has a she has something she needs, but she's not telling him what it is, but she wants him to go in and find something. She's very emotional about it. And he just thinks it's bad because he doesn't know that there's a reason for it. And he thinks that she's nuts. But, you know, it's her it's family. So he's still going to do it. Like you have these tensions within it that I think bear out really well. There's just a lot of not communication happening. Yeah. And a lot of people really not copying to the vulnerabilities that they feel. Fiona is interesting to me because she's kind of an she's kind of an anarchist in her ideology, but you know she just wants to sow mayhem for the mage. But I just really struck me how both Simon and Baz are just pawns used by these adults to yeah execute their ideologies. Right, like Matali at least gives her kids autonomy. Like she has yeah. her views, but she trusts her children. Like even if she doesn't necessarily agree with their decisions, like she doesn't yeah. like that Penny is so attached to Simon and that. You know, he's leading her down this path. She obviously has her issues with Pramal and like being part of the Mages Men. But oh man, that one. I just, yeah, we need to talk about that because that. I put it as my in-depth because great. I wanted to talk about. Okay, great. Yeah, I think I did. I definitely, or maybe I, yeah. I'm pretty sure I just, this is my in-depth. When she says, you know, like Rolf from The Sound of Music, that really struck me. Like, I love The Sound of Music and I've, I watched it as like a young child. I feel like The Sound of Music was always on. So I watched it a lot. Um. And I, yeah. Just as an FYI, my niece's favorite song last year was Lonely Goat Herd. Oh, cute. And so that was my sister-in-law's top Spotify play for the year. That's amazing. The thing that surprises me about The Sound of Music is how long it is. Like, I always forget how long it is. Uh, when I yeah, was... it's like two movies in one. Yeah. When I was backpacking around Europe, we were in Salzburg and the 
backpackers we were staying at would, sh- would show The Sound of Music every night. And so we were watching it. And that's probably the first time I watched it as like, you know, an adult. I was 24. And we were all like, holy crap, Christopher Plummer is hot. Like things you don't appreciate when you watch it as a child. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I would also leave the convert for him. <laughs> But yeah, I just found that so fascinating because I remember like that was probably how I learned about fascism and Nazism as a kid. Like that was my first exposure of it was through The Sound of yeah. Music and this idea that someone who was who was just like a kid just going about his life would just end up in this environment, right? Yeah, and turn you and your family in. Because they believe in the ideology, like they've been sold this belief, this guy, like this, yeah, this dream. And we see this all the time. Like, this is what militaries do. I don't care which side of the, the law you fall in, like, whether you're right or yeah. wrong. But militaries indoctrinate people. That's what they do. That's how you get them to go fight wars. Yep. It's absolutely training for conformism, which is really interesting. A Lots of places do it, though. Not just military. I mean, there are, like, jobs where the culture of the job is such that you... True. Yeah. You struggle when you leave it because you've been, like, pulled into this culture and you've had to, like, shave off all your rough edges to fit into the specific mold. So when you leave, you don't fit anywhere else for a mm-hmm. while. It's really hard to take those skills and move elsewhere. Yeah, it's interesting to me because I grew up, like, my early schooling was in South Africa, which I would argue the school system was like that. It was very regimented and, like, very strict. It was very much about conforming and, you know, getting rid of the rough edges and forcing people into a very set type of behaviour. And to the point mm-hmm. where when I moved schools and came to Australia, I was just couldn't cope for the first year because it was so wildly different and people just the structure had fallen yeah and people just could do what they wanted and I couldn't understand when you've been indoctrinated like that to behave a certain way when you get out of that system it's quite confronting yeah yeah I think about that a lot with my kids and like we have to make sure that the values of the schools match when they go from primary to high school because otherwise it'll be too big of a shock because you, you definitely need to be able to trust that where you're going will have a similar enough environment that you're not going to be jarred or shocked out of it. Mm. I wonder if this is why Simon is so worried about Watford in general. Like he loves it, but he doesn't feel like he belongs, but he loves it. Mm. It's because he didn't grow up in magic the way that Agatha describes it as like, you are magic, you're stuck with it forever. It's a religion, but you can't phone it in and just Mm. turn up on Christmas and Easter. I mean, because it's part of what you are. I don't want to say it's like an allegory for like an ethnic identity, but it kind of is, right? Like you are always going to be this thing and you're always going to belong, even if you are annoyed with some of the facets of it, right? Like I'm always going to be American, Mm. but also it's not where I live. Yeah, and on that point, I thought it was interesting that Agatha says on page 197, you're stuck with wars that never end because people don't know when they started. It's this idea that just because you're magic, you're sucked into this this war, right? You've inherited it. Yeah. I think Simon is fascinating because I don't really think he has an ideology of his own. I think he parrots the mage, but I don't think he actually believes any of it. He just wants to do the right thing. And mostly doing the right thing is not hurting people. Like that's why he doesn't tell anyone about Baz's mum, despite having that no secrets pack with Penny, which is like the height of irony when he reminds her about that. Being like, no secrets. Well, Simon. I loved it. I think that he does, but I think that he has it with a specific set of things. So he refuses to pick sides between Penny and the mage because he loves them. That Mm. actually kind of is a core tenant. He's willing to listen to reason, even if it comes from someone he hates, right? So like when he and Baz have this truce and then Baz is telling him, stop, stop, don't attack the dragon. He actually listens. Like he thinks about it on page 239. He's like, I think about taking a whack at the dragon while it's distracted, but Baz told me to stop. I move slowly until I'm standing behind him. So he shifts his thinking because he's willing to be receptive. Like, if he has an ideology, it's to do the right thing. And everybody notices Mm. this about him. Yeah. Sometimes he's pushy about it. Everybody thinks that he's, like, an attention grabber because of it. Like, Agatha's like, it's really quiet around here if you're not dating Simon Snow. And Baz is like, everything is about you. He even snaps, you know, I thought that for once this might not be. But, of course, it probably is. And that's just, like, unnecessary. But, you know, I think Simon really will try always to do the right thing yeah no i agree i think that is his fundamental ideology right like on page 217 when he first says he's gonna help baz right he says as you know because she was your mother and they killed her in front of you and that's that's wrong he's always motivated by that and when baz says that he's gonna kill the person responsible simon is kind of like oh you can't you know i'm not helping you with that but i think that is so funny because baz is the villain that's the ideology that he's supposed to be following right like Mm -hmm. he's the villain but baz has never actually killed anyone whereas simon 
as a hero has and yet he's horrified at the idea of Baz killing someone right like he's like oh no I didn't sign up for that but Simon kills indiscriminately all the time just because that's where he gets pointed to, right? When the dragon turns up, yeah, he's like, another thing for me to kill. And it's Baz who has to come in and be like, no, they're not dark creatures, which is a nice subversion of that. Also, I think this is the first time that Baz ever says Simon, like he ever calls him Simon. (gasps) Ooh. Like, I know it's a, a trope to be like, he only refers to him by his last name, but I always track when Baz calls him Simon, and this is, I'm pretty sure, is the first time. He does yell it, though. Like, he's trying mm. to get his attention. Yeah, he yells it twice. I think Baz also struggles with this ideology around vampires, right? But particularly yeah. what he believes to be his mother's ideology regarding vampires. I agree. I think he has a real block about it. I think he doesn't consider himself a person. Yeah, he he's... thinks he's a monster, right? He might not be a human, but he's still a person, right? He has thoughts and feelings and he makes moral choices i feel like that's what personhood is Mm. that's what makes you a person absolutely human maybe not i don't know but like person for sure just what it does to him when he reads that account about his mum, right the fact that he's never read it before i think is quite Mm. something but you know when it says that she used a self-immolation spell and like how that just destroys him and he just sits there yeah because he's like right my mum's ideology was so strong that she would rather kill herself than be a vampire and yet here i am existing i don't think that that's what happened but okay no no that's just his perception because that's what he thinks (laughs) the ideology is right like that's his view of it he believes that about himself so he's trying to make it fit with what he believes he thinks oh I'm this monster she would kill me she would have done what was right page 215 but my mother she would have killed me she would have faced me what I am and done what was right so he just thinks that of course she would have done that for herself because he believes that about himself he ascribes that to Simon as well page 216 he will finish me Snow will do the right thing right because again it's the ideology if we think of an ideology as something that justifies a worldview or a pattern of Mm behaviour you can see how Baz and Simon just fall into those roles like they're kind of railing again it but they're accepting that this is just how it has to be. Agatha's the same like she's railing against this pattern of behaviour that she's been forced into but she doesn't see a way out like they're just performing and with Agatha so much of her identity is performing like she talks about looking great like my hair is on fire and I won't chase after him because think of how that will look like she's all about the optics right? I love her Instagram influencer vibe I will say like I love that she is just very aware of her beauty and knows how to use it and also she is definitely barking up the wrong tree he is not interested in you at all. But I did love when he said there must be a better way to get your parents' attention because that's kind of what it is. Like, she's rebelling. Mm-hmm. She even has that conversation with herself when she's waiting for him, right? Or like, thinking about him. She's like, I can't date a Tory vampire, but she kind of loves the idea of it because it's so subversive. It's like, yeah. yeah, you're always going to go for the bad guy, right? Like, mm, yeah. so edgy. It's like planning to date someone or thinking about dating someone simply because they give you stimulation in the way that other people react to it is not the best reason to date someone. When she does find romance later when she does find that connection with someone nobody else is even a part of the thought process behind it like it just doesn't even occur to her to think about what it would look like Agatha's so conscious of appearance because she's been expected to be and I think that it has become part of her ideology that she has to appear perfect and she doesn't really know how to shed it and good yeah and good she doesn't really know how to shed it so she's just trying to do whatever she can to get rid of that golden destiny it's also just how I, our ideologies limit our worldview, right? <clears throat> because if you're mm. so stuck in what you think your belief is and what you believe of others you don't have any scope to really see beyond that or to give grace to people to look beyond it and I really it really stood out to me on page 209 when Simon and Baz are having that argument and Simon yells at Baz you know like I hope your secret trip was worth it because your mother came for you she came she came and she came and you were off planning your hopeless rebellion like Simon doesn't know it but that is an immensely hurtful thing to say to Baz like he didn't leave out of his own volition he was being tortured and like the idea that he missed his mother is absolutely devastating to him but it also comes from a wound for Simon too right because he wants someone to come for him and she did and he never knows it he never knows that someone did come for him and I don't know if she ever will because she doesn't go back when everyone is called back like Lucy stays and tells her story what does that mean does that mean that she's not on the other side does that mean she's still roaming around like I don't I don't know what that means for Lucy and it scares me she deserves better justice for Lucy I think Penny has an ideology that's basically just don't leave your friend behind. Yeah, yeah. She basically would walk over coals to get to Watford to spend that last year with Simon. She is the dread companion. She takes it very seriously. But also I think that there's real love there and there's something really special about the way that she and Simon 
have made each other the core of their lives. Like they are, mm-hmm. I don't know, these twin sons maybe. And they work together so well. And their friendship is just really, really solid. And I love that about them. I think that they are each other's touchstone. They are each other's anchor. I think Penny needs to know that all that she knows about magic is very mutable. And Simon is like the living embodiment of the impossibility of things. And I think that Penny sort of embodies for Simon the idea that you can be brave and clever and also foolish and impulsive. And she's just everything in one package. And also loyal and brave. And he really believes in the value of being loyal and brave and doing the right thing. And Penny very much does too. They have a shared ideology in that. I thought it was so telling that her nightmare that she has after the the humdrum kidnaps them right it's not about what happens to her it's about not being able Mm. to help simon like that's what keeps her up like that's what terrifies her is that she lets him down that she can't help him it's so sad it's such an awful description of trying to like fix him and help him and just having to unmake him these poor kids they deserve so much better the adults really let them down right like this is Mm. the thing like people get so swept away by the ideology and we're seeing this at the protest at parliament where there are children being used on the front lines to stop police from coming in and clearing them out and wow that's not cool because that's one of the reasons the police won't go in they say that there are too many kids down there and it's just kind of like why would you put your child in this environment and also using them as a scapegoat for the reason of this protest being like leave our children alone don't force vaccinate them don't do these things it's like kids aren't tools for you to further your own stories your own ideology they're just horrific and that's how simon and baz and penny and agatha all of them are just pawns being used by adults yeah and of course the og harry poor harry yeah my daughter is reading prisoner of azkaban now so we're really getting into the like woolly bits she was very worried about scabbers oh dear (laughs) I I, i was like he doesn't die don't worry Scabbers isn't dead because <laughs> she reads pretty fast but I don't think she's getting the depth of it you know so we, we've had a lot of conversations about why it's not great and like do you think it's really fair that Harry had to go and do this and do you think it's really okay that you know he and Ron felt responsible for this and do you think it's really all right that Hermione had to do this like keep talking mm. about it like how would you feel if you a 10 year old were put in this position like what would you want and you know I think the answer would probably be I want a grown-up to help because you know you're a kid yeah I think it's interesting that you're having that chat with her because that's not the way you read books, right? Like when you, especially when you're younger, it's kind of like, oh, I'm going to go on a grand adventure and you don't see the depth of it. You don't see yeah. the, the scale of it, which is why the Hunger Games are such a good subversion of that, right? Because Katniss is like, yeah. I don't want to be part of this. No, she absolutely doesn't. She's like, I just have to do it, but this is terrible. Yeah. I would say if you're looking for a book about ideologies and the poisonous way that they can affect and disrupt lives, Hunger Games is a great place to start, really. And actually also just about how sometimes it's not about right or wrong, like it's not about left or right. That's not the that's not the point, right? If you're not building a community and supporting the community, then what is the point? And the community needs to be bigger than just you and people like you if you're in government. The government is supposed to serve people, not its own interests. Like this is where the mage is falling down, right? His ideology has gotten in the way of actually serving the wider interests of yes. the magical society that he's meant to be shepherding. And this is all that's ever motivated him. Like, you know, when Matali says sending children to fight the humdrum because he's recruiting people to be cannon fodder. They're like, that's absolutely true. And Simon says, you know, he doesn't just hassle people. He doesn't have time for that. But we have seen him just hassle people. Like he straight up just hassles the old families because he can. Yeah, he's doing it so he can ostensibly find a spell to help Simon. But he could help Simon by just sitting him down with a therapist twice a week for a couple of months. Jeez. I thought it was so telling on page 212 when, you know, Simon says, but the mage doesn't want to hurt your family. And Penny says, who does he want to hurt Simon? Because Penny knows, like, yes, her mum doesn't like the mage so she's been exposed to this kind of rhetoric. But I think Penny is also smart enough to know that the mages are not all above board, right? Like, he, who does no. he want to hurt? Because he does want to hurt someone. He's not, you know, benevolent. And if they were looped in on things, they wouldn't feel like they were being acted against. But now that they're not looped in on things, they do suspect that they're being acted against because they have been part of it long enough to have the instinctual knowledge that if you're not in with the mage, you're not in. Yeah, and then Simon says, you know, people who want to hurt us, people who want to hurt me, which is excellent foreshadowing for what happens at the end of this because who wants to hurt Simon? The mage. I hate him so much. I hate the mage so much. Like, he's just failing on every level. 
the whole thing with the yeah. dragon is just one of my all-time favorite scenes of this series because I just one I mm. love this section because everyone talks about Baz being flammable and it's what it brings me such joy like <laughs> Daphne Malcolm and Simon all the people who love him the most all talk about him being flammable and I just I know it's so and funny. it's such an identity marker for him as well because fire is the thing that ties him to his mother and he's he, it's so contradictory because he's flammable right but I really love the dragon thing because you finally see Simon getting control of his magic. Like he has found a way to channel his Mm. magic for the first time he can use it productively. And it's just so beautiful. I found that this was such a nice, ambiguous way of saying it. On page 239, and then I do something I'd never done before, something I probably wouldn't try with anyone I was scared of hurting. I push. I take some of the magic that's always trying to get out of me, and I push it into Baz. I love this because it could either mean he doesn't care about Baz so he can hurt him if he wants. That's not true. He's just been going, you're flammable. But I think he actually believes that Baz is unkillable immortal like indestructible yeah yeah like he really thinks he's strong enough to take this stuff and baz would really love to have that read like he would really love to feel like he has achieved that perception Mm. in other people's minds because he's Mm. very vain and likes being remote and distant and very in control but i just love that it was something that simon was like i am very powerful but it's a gigantic mess when i do it but here let me give this to someone who i'm not going to hurt because he's always in control yeah yeah and i think definitely the first time i read this book it was very much like oh he doesn't care if he kills baz but the second time around it's very much oh he thinks baz is indestructible and we see this later in the way that simon behaves towards Baz as well it's just this idea that I can't hurt him right like I can Hmm. do whatever I want because I can't hurt him and Baz is so unwell as well because the section before this he's talking about how he's dead on his feet how he has doesn't have the magic he he never he's never warm enough he's never full enough he just feels shattered he's sleeping nine hours a night you know he's so unwell and he's still doing this hard magic like he still stands up in front of this dragon tries to cast the full nursery rhyme he's still gonna do it like he's so good I love him so much and then Simon comes and supports him. Yeah, I love that bit where he puts his hand on his shoulder, like pushes him. Because this is the third time, fourth time he's touched him, right? So the first time was like little shoulder bump, like, hey, yeah. I'm here. The second time he actually puts his hand on his shoulder and says, like, it's okay if you're not okay. And then Baz bites his head off because Baz is also not great at dealing with feelings. Yeah. Oh, and they shook hands for the truce, right? The, mm-hmm. the first time. That's the first time they touched. And then now it's putting his hand on his shoulder and pushing magic into him. Yeah, Baz is not great with feelings, but this is the way that he was raised. So I want to talk about Baz's identity as a vampire, right? Simon talks about, I don't know how he can do this, page 231. Talk about vampires without acknowledging that he is one. Pretending that I don't already know, that he doesn't know, that I don't know, which I love. (laughs) But that is his whole life. Like, no one acknowledges that Baz is a vampire. Everyone in his family knows it. No one mentions it except to say that, you know, oh, you're flammable, which, lol. This is such a great allegory for queerness, too. Yeah, I think this is a subversion of that because there's a long academic history of people reading vampirism as an allegory for queerness, right? Like, Mm. vampires have always been a bit gay, like, all the way back. (laughs) Especially if you read Anne Rice, like, so queer. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot around that and how, like, it is an allegory for being gay. But Baz is straight up just gay, right? So he says about his dad, he's definitely more disappointed about my queerness than my undeadness. And I just think it's fascinating that you have a gay vampire and it's not the fact that he's gay that's the problem. It's the fact that he's a vampire. Like, it's just, it's an interesting subversion of the trope. To me, it calls to mind the idea that he wouldn't have a a child and like the Pitch family, that he's the last of the Pitch family, right? Mm. Like, that's just, it's not going to happen. He's not going to have a kid. So I can see why his dad would be like, but... But like this, you're the last one. You have to do the thing. Fiona's there. She can have a kid. Yes, but I feel like it was all pinned on Baz. And like you can see, like the way he remembers his mother, that she was preparing him for a life of leadership in Mm. that way. The way she was raised, right? Like she was groomed for leadership. Yeah. Talking about like, I was always allowed to read every book as long as I put it back and asked her questions if I got confused or didn't understand something. Like he was always given the freedom of information and always given the opportunity to learn and always had the support and care of someone who believed that education was important, right? Like he was nurtured. Mm. And, you know, I think to have his mother, who was very forthright, gone from his life and then have his dad, who's extremely stoic and just doesn't know how to talk about stuff. It just, I just get the feeling his dad just uh, is the, uh, I'll, I'll, put, I'll put on some tea kind of person. Like, yeah. It's Scottish, a difficult feeling. Scottish farmer. Yes. I, I will go into the other room until the people are done having the feelings. But I do think that Baz knows he's loved fundamentally. Like mm. he knows that he is loved, which is just, th- this is why it kills me because his mom was the one who expressed that love. His dad doesn't, but he knows his dad will never 
deter from from being a vampire. And that's really amazing that he's able to sort of separate out, like, yeah, my dad's never going to talk to me about this, but, like, he'll also not disown me. Mm. It's really beautiful that he's so secure in that, because Simon doesn't have any assurances that he is loved unconditionally anywhere. No. And Vaz has two. Like, he has a mother who loved him. He doesn't think she would now. That's a whole other thing. But his dad loves him. His stepmom loves him. Like, he's looked after and cared for. Simon just fundamentally feels unworthy all of the time. Like, he talks about he feels like he's letting Penny down and, like, all these things. And then even at the end, you know, Miss Possibelf comes over after they've turned the dragon away and gives Baz all the credit. Which, fair, he did the spell. But then she says to Simon, you need to work on your elocution, right? So he's always just, Mm. he's never good enough. That's the read he's getting. He's never good enough what he does. He never belongs. He's never enough. And this permeates his identity, and we'll see this throughout the books. Like, this will motivate so much of his behavior throughout the books, because he just has no self-worth. Once he's not the chosen one anymore, then... What has he got? He doesn't really have anything. Just mooching around, waiting for Baz to dump him, basically. Which is a wild misreading of Baz's intentions as well, but, you know, communication, boys. Communication. I had some perfectly normal roommate behavior. Oh, yeah. Um, page 200. Snow has been staring at me all day for weeks now, and I'm just really not up for it. <laughs> Page 201. He's been following me everywhere since I got back. He hasn't been this persistent since our fifth year. And then um, when he's talking about like what he wants to happen, he goes, those are my fifth year fantasies. Kisses and blood and snow ridding the world of me. Calm down, Edgelord. I just love that line. It's one of my all-time faves. Like, I just think it's so great. So emo. Um, also, Simon is just so fixated on Baz's appearance. Like, on page 207 and page 221, we get mm. paragraphs about Baz's hair and how he dresses and his eyes and his nose. Like, Simon, mm-hmm. you need to chill. And, like, also, when he gets the compliment at the end from Miss Possibelf, he bows his head perfectly, humbly. Mm. It's the prettiest thing I've ever seen. I love that line. I just love that he takes that moment to appreciate the beauty of Baz just floating down over the moat. Um, And I loved on page 223, 224, someone else's magic never feels like your own, like someone else's spit never tastes like your own. Though I guess I can only speak for Agatha's. Baz's magic burns like heat rub. It hangs in the muscles of my hand. You're comparing someone using magic on you to kissing... I just Mm. think you might have some feelings for Baz. And on that same page, page 224, when they're both staring at our joined hands, I can still feel Mm. his magic. Like, so they're just like staring at their hands. Cool, boys. That's fine. They're about to break into song, basically. This is exactly what happened with Agatha and Baz in the Wavering Wood when Simon and Penny stumbled Mm. upon him at the end of the last year, right? Like, this is exactly the same pose. Also, I thought on page 209 when Simon says, I'm more scared for him than I am for myself, even though I know he wants to kill me. Like, he is so obsessed with protecting Baz. Like, don't get expelled. Yeah, when he's, like, trying to get him not to hurt him. Like, you don't want to hurt me, right? I'm sorry. Look at me. I am sorry. Like, he's talking him down. And then Baz has food for him. Like, he feeds him. He's like, I know you can't function unless you're stuffing yourself. Like, if that's not a love language, I don't know what is. (laughs) Feeding people is a love language. Mm. Food is how you, you say I'm thinking of you. You spend time making something for someone that is useful and helpful in that moment. Um, Can I just say something that I love tangentially? Page 201 when Baz says, I hold myself up to the weeping tower and skip the spiral staircase to take the staff elevator to the very top. I just love that Baz knows there's an elevator and Simon doesn't because Simon's always trudging up and down these stairs and like there's a perfectly <laughs> good elevator that you don't know about. Also, the arrogance of the mage to not take the wards down. Like, has he just never thought that, of course, there would be wards to let people in? Yeah, I don't think he lives there. He doesn't actually care about the school. He just wants to be in charge of it to say he's in charge of it. He doesn't care Mm. about it as a thing. It makes me angry. Like, I do agree that some of the reforms are good. Like, let people in, let them learn magic. Help them get better at it. That's not really helping, right? Like, they're not really doing that. They're still teaching students who are at a different level the way that they would teach students at a higher level, right? Yeah. So there's not, like, some of those kids, like Garrett in particular, needs an IEP, individual education plan, where he can, like, learn how to recite spells and, like, maybe find a different thing to do other than thrust his groin at things when he's trying to cast spells, right? There has to be a way to make it work for people. Like, we can teach people almost anything. I really believe everybody deserves an education. If you have the potential and you want to reach it, you should be allowed to, so... I have opinions about the pedagogy of Watford. Yeah. But the mage is doing nothing for that. Like, he's not he's not involved. He just wants to raid houses and win yeah. some little war. It's just a pawn. Like, again, the children are just mm-hmm. a pawn in as big a game, right? Like, Watford, like I said last time, I feel like he's holding these children hostage, essentially, yeah. to keep people in line. 
That's why he wants control. You can't get in if you're out. The drawbridge, like Simon was talking about, Baz playing pranks on him. I get the feeling that Baz is like Jim from The Office. <laughs> and Simon's a bit like Dwight. Do you get that feeling? Like when yeah. you're about all the things that Baz did? And he's like, I don't understand why Baz was, what he was trying to achieve by doing this. I'm like, clearly just annoy you. That's what yeah, he was trying he to achieve. To get a reaction out of you. This is the instance where he's pulling your pigtails and it actually is because he likes you. This is the one sanctioned instance. I also love that the book that Baz chooses from the shelf is about dragons and the art of Mm. burning because it just kind of reminded me of what he said about living with the person you want most, you know, and then you burn. Everything is fire for him. And then I love the reference on page 206 where Simon remarks about Baz that, you know, the look on his face when he saw it, like someone blew a horn and his walls crumbled. I just love a little sneaky biblical reference. Like it makes me feel like all those years of, you know, religious education at primary school is really pulling off (laughs) when I pick up on something like that. I'm like, yes. Yeah, I remember a lot from those Sunday school years and definitely the the walls of Jericho was a thing. Yep, you walk around the walls six times and on the seventh day you blow the horn and the walls come down. It was something that I would say a lot when I was a small child and I would be like, I'm going to walk around this six times and then it'll fall to pieces. Like, I don't know why. I, I just that. really, really like that one. It's stuck with you because it, mm. it gives you the idea that doing something that seems silly can actually have a really dramatic effect. It's also just persistence. Like, if you keep doing it, mm-hmm. eventually something will happen. Yep. Um, I also just love the parallel when Simon talks about Baz has worked himself up to a full strop because you've got that with like Baz saying no one blusters like Simon blusters like they just know each other so well I feel like the way they know each other makes me know them so well and this this is just a testament really to Rainbow Rowell's ability to write characters that are completely realistic and so well realized like I don't think there are very many people who can write characters this way like I think I know Penny and I feel like I know Simon and I feel like I know Baz because we get all of this insight from them and it's so much more interior because it's first person I think shifting the first person perspectives yeah and something I really love about this as well is how you pick up on the things that matter to them without being explicitly told like I always think about this like we know that Baz is really into cars right because he always remarks about cars like he just has this little interior reference 81 wore it green lovely lovely And it's the same with his, like, love of music. Like, we're never explicitly told that Baz is really into music, but you just pick it up throughout the series. You're like, oh, okay, no, he's, like, really, like, he's a, you know, a stand for the the music. Like, it's great. His mother was a fiend for Wham. I keep telling Meredith about this book because, obviously, she is a a Wham fan and, like, she's going to lend me Andrew's autobiography so I can get more info. Cute. I love it. Supplementary materials. Approved. (laughs) Oh dear. Well, did you have anything else? I think that was it for me. I mean, I'd like to talk a little bit about Natalie. Yeah. Um, specifically, I want to talk about when she is upset about Premal coming in and like trying mm-hmm. to raid their house. It's really important that we note that her ideology is very firm. Like she believes in civil liberties. She believes in the freedom of information. You know, Penny says, you know, my mom, information wants to be free. There's no such thing as a bad thought. She tries to draw this line with her family. Like, it's not okay to be fascist and be her kid. Like, and mom said he could come back as a Nazi and a fascist, but not as her son. But I think that's a bluff. Like, I really don't think that that's genuine. I think that's her just absolutely being a bluff because she's so angry about Penny being traumatized that she can't treat it like a problem. Um, On page 191, she says, I thought she'd want to work out how the humdrum had done it. It's impossible to steal someone like that, to port them that far. The magic required. Even Simon doesn't have enough. But mom refused to approach it intellectually. Like, here's someone who loves her kids so much and is so frustrated that the politics of the mage are interfering with their day-to-day lives, interfering with their ability Mm. to be normal human beings, basically, that she is furious in all directions and can't really pick an ideology even though her ideology is still very much the forefront of what she wants to be like she wants to be the person who has freedom of information and there is no such thing as a bad thought and yes we definitely need to like put the banned books back in the library at Watford but also like she just loves her kids and she wants them to be okay and that's why she's so angry at Primal because he's not okay and she can see that yeah, it's more just to shock him, right? Like, she's trying to force him yeah. to see reason. Like, she, it upsets her that he has bought into this ideology of the mage when she has raised her children to be, not be like that, right? To be in her ideology yeah. of, like, freedom of information and all these things. And so to have him be so wholly embedded into the mage, for her to, to be like, you can come back as a, a fascist but not as my son, is kind of a way yeah. to shock him out of it. Yeah. The problem is it doesn't ever work. No, but people try all the time. Yeah. 
speaking from the wound and not the scar, I think. Yeah, and I think we see that a lot these days. Like, a lot of families are fracturing because of different beliefs and how do you reconcile these things, right? Like, how do you reconcile someone that you love holding a belief that is just against what you fundamentally believe in yourself? But whether Pramal actually does, I don't know. You know, he's just, and I hate this, following orders, quote unquote, which is problematic in and of itself. But whether he, you know, he doesn't understand the full scope of what the mage is doing. He's just been given one element of this ideology. The same way that when you think you know when I get upset at my parents for making like as a kid like for making a decision that I didn't understand and I thought was just out to hurt me like I didn't Mm. understand the full scope of their experience or the full scope of where (laughs) they were coming from right and I think we see this in the second book when they're so reluctant to involve the adults in a problem that they should fundamentally be involved in because they're just worried about how they're going to react and then in the third book it's like well it's not even a thing (laughs) yeah you only ever see a slither of someone's experience you can never really know another person you can never really understand where they're coming from the best you can do is listen and try and meet them somewhere in the middle but then there's that whole thing about if you see one person having dinner with nine nazis then actually what you're seeing is a dinner of 10 nazis it's not letting poisonous ideologies get a foot in the door basically there's Mm. a really great tweet thread going around i'll have to find it but it's about a guy who was sitting in a bar and the bartender was like you know normal bartender but someone came in sat down and the guy was like no you out the first guy was like what was that about he said well look he was wearing a bunch of nazi stuff you're nice to one of them more will come in and by the time you figure out that it's a nazi bar it's been a nazi bar for longer than you can even imagine because you can't just let one of them get their foot in the door then they'll tell the other ones then they'll come in and like you just can't do that to the other people who aren't nazis and i think that that's a really good way of looking at it like you do have to draw the line like this is not appropriate this is not acceptable but like when the behavior is about hurting other people and subjugating them that's where you draw the line not when someone like gets a piercing or something yeah It's about actively harming other people, I think. That's where it is, right? Like Yeah, yeah. We should care about others. Yeah. Like when people ask me how I vote or what my politics are, I say, like, I just do what I can to protect the most vulnerable members of the community. Because no one can really argue with that. Like people really want to. I can see them wanting to. But the truth is, like, the people who would benefit will benefit so much more that I will be inconvenienced. Protect the vulnerable. Yeah. I'm fine. Lots of people aren't. I can't take care of them all, but the best I can do is support the social structures that do. That's all we can do. Mm. Work within the system you have. I just want to flag one thing before we get Mm. to our in-depth marginalia, and that is just how magic is an identity marker. Like, we've spoken about it a little bit, but, you know, Penny talks about magicians not being able to handle the dead spots because they basically go mad because they're so used to their magic. And then Agatha's obviously talked about how it defines people and how it's like a religion. And I think this will come up later. We'll see the damage that this does in the third book so I thought it was just worth flagging that it's already coming up yeah and there's also the way that it's presented as an absolute truth I think is really important Mm. in this book like the world of mages is presented as the world of mages but when we get to the second book and then the third book where we meet Shep who just traverses all of these boundaries and is in every world Mm. and he's just so curious he's just so excited he just wants to learn like he's the true finder of knowledge I love Shep Like, he actually is able to sort of cross these boundaries that, like, other people don't because that's not what they believe. And Penny, I find her really interesting because she says a lot of things are impossible as they're happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's very rigid. It's impossible to port people that far. Oh, except it totally happened to them. Like, it's impossible for you to push magic into Baz, except it totally just happened. Yeah, it's interesting to have such a rigid view of the world when you are surrounded by magic. Like, when the impossible is already happening, why would something else be impossible? You know what I mean? Like, this is already happening. So sure, let's throw (laughs) aliens in the mix, you know? Like, why not? I am always reminded, I'm always reminding my husband of the time he told me my computer couldn't possibly be booting from the back up and it totally was booting from the backup and so now when I bring a problem to him and he starts to kind of go mm, I don't know if that's the thing I'll just be like it's booting from the backup and he has to remember that yeah like weird things do happen and sometimes it does not look the way it should look and he's I think he's a lot like petty in that way I really really dislike when people tell me that something is not happening when it's legit <laughs> happening you could just have believed me yeah well did you have some in-depth marginalia for me I did. I did. It's all mums for me this week. I think it's been a rough week for me and I'm just like, I just want to hug my kids all the time. So on page 230, Baz is remembering what happened in the nursery. And he says, I remember the look on my mother's face when she saw me, a flash of agony before the man holding me sank his teeth into my neck. So this is as as he was being bitten, as he was being turned into a vampire. And like, this is the last time he saw his mother alive. So he's internalized this as, oh, 
my mother is in agony because she sees that I'm becoming a vampire. And he honestly believes his mother would kill him if she were alive. Like, he thinks that her ideology against dark creatures is so strong that it would extend to killing him. Like, that's what he believes. And he uses a lot of these depersonalizing terms about himself, and he frames himself in terms of what he thinks she would think of him, um, but also in terms of, like, how... Like, what her expectations would have been for him had he not been bitten. Like, he is really Mm. big on, like, the family legacy of the fire magic. And, like, his education is very important to him. And he works really hard on his grades. And he, like, tries really hard to be top of the class. Knowing that that was a value that of hers that he wants to share, right? So I feel like he's always chasing both her ideologies and also trying to reconcile the fact that he doesn't fit into them. Mm. And I wonder about this and, like, what it reminds me of is, like, Baz doesn't have explicit acceptance. It's all tacit acceptance. He's convinced that his mom, who loved him and was open with him, would have done away with him rather than let him be a vampire, which is a lot of a projection. Like, it's a big projection. Mm. I've had the kind of week where it's become really clear that people project all sorts of things, even when there's very little evidence to support it, just because they're hurting or defensive or they feel, feel threatened or upset. Yeah. And so going forward, I'm going to try and remember that people are experiencing things as they are. I can't really make people experience things as I experience them. And if they're not receptive to me, it might not be about me. It might be their ideologies or expectations. And it's okay to stop trying to reach those people. Like, I might have to just let them believe what they will until they're ready to approach the idea of accepting a different narrative. And I really hope that one day Baz will accept a different narrative about his mother, one where she loves her son no matter what or who he has become. Yeah. It's so hard to do. It's so hard to like accept, you know, that we're all coming from different places and Mm. especially when it's close to your heart and especially when it's people that you love because it hurts so much more, right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So how about you? Do you have in-depth marginalia? I do. So mine's page 234 and it's, no, I mean, it's okay that you're not okay. Whatever you're feeling is okay. So this is Simon trying to comfort Baz when Baz is having this moment because he's just read this thing about his mum and he's just like, yeah, spacing out. And Simon's trying to say him that, you know, it's fine that you're not, you're not okay. I think this is just Simon's ideology of always trying to do the right thing and make sure that people are okay. Like, and it's also his identity. Like he needs to fix things. He rushes in and he fixes things, right? Like he can't just let stuff happen. And I think it really stood out to me because I've had a lot of conversations this week with friends who have been going through various things and. And I feel like so many of them try to give excuses for their feelings. They're always trying to justify why they feel the way they do. They're always like, well, this and this and this. And so therefore I feel this. And I'm like, you don't have to. Like, I actually texted a friend yesterday and I said, stop making excuses. Like, you can just feel what you feel. It's fine. You don't have to justify (laughs) it. It's legitimate. Your feelings are valid. Like, you don't have to come up with an excuse for why you feel the way that you do. Like, you just feel it. That's fine. That's enough. You know, I just think it's so important that we just recognize that our feelings are what they are and you just sit with them. And that doesn't mean that you are your feelings. It just means this is a thing that you're experiencing. It's okay to just like, you know, a meditation. It's like you sit there and you watch them float by and you recognize that they're there. But it doesn't mean that that's who you are. That's what you have to be. Like, it can just be an acknowledgement. I feel like everyone's just feeling so much right now. Everyone feels so much. So when the world is crazy, I think it's just important to remember it's okay. It's okay to feel what you feel. Like, it doesn't have to define you. It doesn't have to have a reason. You can just feel it and then move on so yeah absolutely that's really beautiful thanks jen it's okay to have your feelings but you must act on them responsibly yeah that's a good point (laughs) that's what i tell my kids you can be mad at me all you want you can just say i'm really mad at you and then leave (laughs) that's what we do we talk about how to be responsible with those big feelings we have yeah and that's a learning thing as well i mean like it's something that i certainly took a long time to learn in therapy one of the things was like when a situation is making me feel uncomfortable it's okay to remove yourself from the conversation or to remove Mm -hmm. yourself from the situation you don't have to stay there and just sit there so often like especially with my dad i would be like look i'm just gonna remove myself from this conversation because i don't like where it's going so i'm just gonna leave you know that's just what i'm gonna do yep i've done that too it's much better to just walk away from it when it's not so serving you and when people can't get to a good agreement yeah do you have a character you'd like to spotlight this week so interestingly i want to spotlight Matali Bunce because 
she is part of a governance structure that she does not agree with and that has sucked yeah. her children along with her, right? Like, she is watching her kids just be used by this structure that she doesn't agree with, like Penny by virtue of being close to Simon, Pramal by being radicalised by the mage. And I genuinely think this is a, a lot of families right now. Like, people yeah. are in similar positions where they have someone radicalised to a point beyond reason and it's so yeah. incredibly tough. As we've discussed, like, when you love someone, you don't want to cut them out of your life, but how can you reason with them when they've essentially been brainwashed right and they just believe yeah. that they're right i really feel for matali like she has such rigor in her beliefs and she's so smart and so strong but she doesn't this is a battle that she can't win through reason alone so yeah big hugs yeah. to everyone in that situation shout out to every parent who has to deal with their kids being traumatized by circumstances outside of their control yeah it's hard to navigate that <laughs> Who did you want to spotlight? Well, I was also going to spotlight Matali, but I think you said it so well that I might shift and spotlight Baz. Mm. I really felt for him this time. I really felt for the way that he, he has to construct a narrative about who he thinks he is based on what he believed his mother would have done and that he doesn't really have enough memories. But when he gets them back, they're so vivid and so powerful. I also really get that he is just angry. He's angry that he's remembering all of the good and the bad things about her. Like he's hurting and he's angry and he's lashing out. And I understand, dude, I am the same. When I am angry, I just want to rage and destroy everything. And mm. it is something that I am working on my whole life. I have gotten so much better, but I still feel immense shame whenever I lose it at someone. So I get it. Also, be nice to your roommate. He is really just trying to help. Aww. So I just want to give a little like shout out to everybody who is going through it because a lot of people are going through it and it is yeah. hard to just be a nice person, to be a kind person when you are feeling that fragile. So well, He just uses it as a shield, right? And we've all been there. Yep. If you're nasty, nobody can see how hurt you are. Yeah. I mean, it can't matter to you if you hurt other people you know on that cheerful note next week we're going to be reading chapters 45 through 53 on the theme of instinct which i'm very excited about me too very excited Yay! we're gonna get more like loveliness between the boys they're gonna become friends i'm so excited yeah. well they're gonna become more not enemies love this journey we're on it gives me life i know i'm so glad we're reading this book i really needed it <laughs> <laughs> just so good it is so good and there's so much to learn from it and i'm just i really enjoy our chats especially i love that we both see so many different things in it thank you no thank you it's always wonderful and yeah so great to see your beautiful face hard same you are lovely and i'm glad to hang out with you even virtually yay <laughs> all right i'll see you next week see ya bye Thanks for joining us today. Marginalia Pod is written, edited, and produced by Jen D and Jen V, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoyed our chat, you can subscribe to Marginalia Pod on your podcast platform of your choice. Your support means the world to us. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at hello at marginaliapod.com. Our music is by Scott Buckley. For extended show notes or to find out more about us, visit us at www.marginaliapod.com. 